Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's turn to John 17. I mean, it shouldn't be hard for us to lift our hands in worship. It really shouldn't. Um, We are commanded, the men of this church have been commanded by God Almighty in His Word to lift their hands in holy prayer before the Lord. And that's what song is. Song is prayer. It's just, it's it's glorified prayer, right? And so... um, it is good. It's discipline of yourself. It's discipline of your body to um, your posture is discipline of the body. And so you should should be able to do that. <clears throat> if you were thinking less of yourself, you might be able to. All right, let's um, read John. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. John seventeen twenty to 23 is what we're uh, focused on this evening. John seventeen twenty to 23 This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, as we think about what, it, what unity is and what it means for your church today, Father, we ask your blessing that you would you would illumine the scripture, that you would give us minds to understand and to believe your word. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Be seated. So we've been going through John 17. This is a prayer that Jesus makes for his apostles and then also beyond his apostles to the church of uh, all the ages. And... The topic that, that Jesus addresses in this passage is unity. Unity. Now, what do you think of when I say the word unity? And perhaps, perhaps you, like me, think of the great disunity of the church today. Denominations galore, right? The Presbyterian church splitting every 40 or 50 years. The great division between Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism and between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism and between Baptists and Pado-Baptists. There's division everywhere in the church today. Right? We, we sing that, that hymn, the hymn I love, The Church is One Foundation. That church that is um, described there by schisms rent asunder and heresies distressed. So, when I say the word unity, your first thought is probably the great disunity uh, that you perceive in the church. That is what a lot of people have lamented, and in the 20th century, it led to um, 
it led to many efforts to bring the church together as one. Uh, that, that movement to bring the church together as one was called the ecumenical movement. You have the efforts of organizations like the World Council of Churches, which began in 1948, who want to save themselves that they are, quote, a worldwide fellowship of churches seeking unity, a common witness in Christian service. That's their entire goal, was to see unity, was to see this prayer of Jesus in some sense fulfilled. Member churches of the, of, the United, of the World Council of Churches include the RCA, the Reformed Church in America, the United Methodist Church, the American Baptist Churches, the ELCA, the Moravian Churches, the PCUSA. What you don't find on that list is the PCA or any other Bible-believing denomination. And so you see, we, we are the ones who are disobedient. Right, We're the schismatics, we're the loveless who will not be part of the Catholic, visible, united church. Or so they say. When we, when, <clears throat> perhaps when I say the word unity, another word comes to mind, and that word is compromise. Right, think of our political system. The best politicians today are compromisers, right? not statesmen. It's the art of the deal, right? It's the art of compromise. The only way Democrats and Republicans can come together in unity is for somebody to give something up to compromise. So when a compromise is settled upon and the Republicans once again compromise their principles to protect life and the Democrats compromise their principles to protect the poor, it's lauded as bipartisan unity. Right, so we can so we easily think of unity as being made only uh, being made possible only through compromise. And so, um, perhaps another another idea that comes to mind when I mention unity is you think of the word word tolerance. Right, to be unified, we must be tolerant in our postmodern age. That that um, dislikes distinctions, there is much talk of tolerance. We allow every man to go his own way, and each man must be committed to allowing himself and others to go the way they want to go. Right? Out of that comes the great goal of unity. Now, it's quite clear that those who sing the praises of tolerance are not, in fact, tolerant. Right? Pastor Doug Wilson said in a lecture at, at Indiana University where he was being cussed at and denounced as a racist, sexist pig by the great warriors of tolerance, while he was lecturing on the Bible's view of sexuality, he said that the diversity crowd has two fundamental tenets. The first is that they have an absolute commitment to freedom of speech, and the second tenet is shut up. And so often today there's a cry for unity through tolerance. Right? And that means to tolerate everything without the standard of God's standard. Um, perhaps when, when I mention unity, you start thinking about our time standing outside the abortion clinic in Greenville. Often I think of that. It's the events out there that have gotten me um, thinking about this quite a bit. The Roman Catholics come out and do things and say things and recite things and pray things that we don't and wouldn't. Right? They pray to Mary, 
Though they don't call it prayer per se, they, they call it asking her to pray for them. They hold pictures of Jesus around their necks. They hold rosary beads in their hands, using them to mark their prayer progression. And several times they've asked me to be involved in some of the things they're doing. And if I were dedicated to unity, right, I'd be over there. Right? If I were truly committed to unity, I would cross Martin Luther Way, which is what we call the driveway, and go over to the Roman Catholic side and just do a simple thing like sing Amazing Grace with them. I'd be praying right along with them. I would not bring up distinctions for fear of driving a wedge between believers of different opinions. And then I would remember that the Roman Catholic Church has pronounced an anathema upon me and upon my church. Right, The Council of Trent and the Roman Catholic Church is supposedly ecumenical council to respond to the Reformers, pronounce an anathema on, anyone, an anathema on anybody who holds the doctrine of salvation through faith alone. We all hold to the doctrine of salvation through faith alone, and so the Roman Catholic Church has pronounced damnation upon us. That doctrine is still their official doctrine. Right? But, but unity, you know, would not, would not remember 500-year-old doctrines. Right? Let bygones be bygones. The Roman Catholic brothers and sisters don't know their doctrine, so we can't fault them for it. And we should be the ones, if we know it, to forget it so that we can pursue unity. Plus, you know, we must be unified to, to fight abortion or else it will not be overcome. Right? And at that point, we all become unified pragmatists. But should, should Athanasius... Not the not Foster, the 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 older one. But should Athanasius have placed unity above disagreement with the Arians? Right? Should he have said, you know, unity, unity? It, it sh- you know, be quiet about this Athanasius contramundum. It should be Athanasius, whatever the Latin would be. Um, everybody together. E pluribus unum. I don't know. Um, should Luther have placed unity above disagreement with the Roman Catholic Church and with the Pope? Should Calvin have placed unity above disagreement with the civil magistrates in Geneva? Should Knox have placed unity above disagreement with Bloody Mary? Right? And all of his his work with um, Mary, Queen of Scots. Should Dietrich Bonhoeffer have placed unity above disagreements with the right church that supported the, the, um, supported the Nazis? Should Martin Lloyd-Jones have gotten along with Billy Graham and simply shared the stage with Roman Catholics back in 50s London? You know, and so we see all of these, um, we see all of these men through the history of the church who have who have destroyed unity, right? That's, that's kind of how people want to see it today. They've been divisive, right? They've been dogmatic. They've been, they've been those who are not tolerant, those who are not 
bringing people together, but putting divisions between, you know, between good people. So in our mind, so shaped by the postmodern age, doctrine divides and stands in the way of unity. All those men stood upon doctrine, right? They stood upon what they believed God's word taught. And for us postmoderns, that, that stands in the way of unity. And unity is, is, the, is the most important thing. In our postmodern age, unity can be found through compromise, through tolerance, through ecumenical movements, and a commitment to utilitarian pragmatism. Right? Whatever gets the most done, whatever accomplishes the most. And that takes critical mass. And it takes unity. The only orthodoxy today is a commitment to peace. To divide over doctrine is a betrayal of Jesus, and it's a betrayal of Jesus' prayer here. So we have a tendency to think. Do you believe that is what Jesus meant when he prayed for unity in the church? Do you believe that's what he meant, that there should not be distinctions made? When Jesus said this prayer we read earlier and, and spoke of, uh, he spoke of us as being all one, verses 21 and 22, and being perfected in unity, verse 23. Was it a call to compromise? Was it a call to tolerance? Was it a call to commitment to the ecumenical movement and to pragmatic reasoning? Was it a call to make unity the singular priority of the church? Most of the American church believes so, that that is what the result of this prayer would be. After all, Jesus did say that unity will have a profound and glorious effect. In verse 21, he prays that we would be unified so that the world would believe that the Father sent the Son. And then again in verse 23, he prays that we would be unified for that same reason that the world would know that the Father sent the Son, and then adds, so that the world may know that the Father loved them. Right? There's something about the love of God that is, that is expressed through the unity of His people. Those are amazing incentives for unity. Right? That the world may believe that Jesus was sent by the Father and that the Father loves them. It's an amazing incentive. Right? Having been forgiven by God through the blood of Jesus Christ and, and sent out into the world to spread that message as his priest, who would not want that power? Right? Who would not want unity to help along that message? Now, earlier in the evening when Jesus prayed the prayer we've been looking at, he said to his disciples, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, when the brothers dwell together in unity, the world, all men, will recognize that you are followers of Jesus. Again, it's powerful incentive to, um, to work toward this goal of unity. And we remember that great psalm that compares unity to an anointing with oil, right? Psalm 133, a song of ascents of David. Behold how good and how and a song of ascents means it was used 
as they approached the Temple Mount to be worshiping the Lord and offering sacrifices. And so they're singing about unity. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing life forever. Right, that, this, that wonderful image of the anointing oil coming down upon the whole, the, the, the priest, all of his garments and robes. Um, that is what unity is like, that, blessed, um, that blessedness. Jesus is praying in John 17 that we might experience that anointing, that flowing of oil that covers one with a fragrant aroma and refreshing joy. What we must remember, though, is that unity is not simply this. It's not simply a commitment to peace above all else. Right? That's what people think unity. That, that's what people say is the only path to unity. We must have peace above all else. Unity will be peaceful if it is unity indeed, but a commitment to peace above all else, regardless of all else, is, is not unity and it's not peace. Remember, Israel was condemned for their mantra, peace, peace. Turn to Jeremiah 8 and you read uh, about that. <clears throat> Jeremiah 8 Verse 8 says, how can, how can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men are put to shame. They are dismayed and caught. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. And what kind of wisdom do they have? Therefore, I will give their wives to others, their fields to new owners, because from the least even to the greatest, everyone is greedy for gain, from the prophet even to the priest... Everyone practices deceit. They heal the brokenness of the daughter of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they had done? They certainly were not ashamed, and they did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall at the time of their punishment. They shall be brought down, says the Lord. Right, so there's Israel saying, peace, peace, you know, the ecumenical movement, peace, let's have peace, let's have peace. But there was no peace, and why was there no peace? Because there was no doctrine, and why was there no doctrine? Because they were all performing their own abominations, going after whatever they liked and expecting it to be tolerated, right? So there was no peace, it was a false peace, in verse 9, the wise men, the teachers, have rejected the word of the Lord. So what they have is simply the word peace without what produces peace. They just have the word. They don't have real unity. They have superficial healing, but not true healing. There is nothing new under the sun, right? The Israelites thought they could have peace without a commitment to God's word, essentially. There was nothing to unify them, but they were calling for unity. They thought themselves wiser than God. They thought, like we think today, that those nasty doctrines of the Bible divide and can't we all just get along and love one another just by some other rules that we make up, some bylaws, right? 
And I tell you, that is just the appearance of unity. That's not real unity. It's the claim to have Jesus without loving what Jesus said. Right? It is God without his word. It is to think that we are wiser than God. Do we remember back in chapter 17 of John, this priestly prayer, prayer of Jesus, what he has just prayed? Remember in verses 17 to 19, he has prayed that they would be sanctified in the truth, in God's word, right? That they would be made holy in the truth. By the word of God, that, dear brothers and sisters, is the ground of unity. God's word, adherence to the teaching of God's word, is the ground of unity. That's the only true unity, unless we want the superficial kind of unity. That's the only true unity that we can have. It is the unity that Jesus prayed for. It is is not just a, a... Unity in name only. It's not a superficial unity. It is unity that is wrought by God's Spirit working through His Word. Right? To conform us to the image of Jesus. So as we are are conformed to Jesus, we dwell together in unity, being like-minded in Jesus Christ. Why would Christians think we can only be, we can be unified only by setting aside his teachings, right? That's what everybody expects today. Oh, well, let's, let's set aside salvation by faith alone, right? And let's get evangelicals and Catholics together. Well, um, no. No, that wouldn't be unity. That would be unity around some other ground. It would be unity around some philosophical construct that allows Roman Catholics and evangelicals to get together. But the word of God teaches salvation by faith alone and not by works. And so we think we can get together and be unified by setting aside the teachings of God's word. Because like Israel, the church heals wounds superficially and has made an idol of unity, have made it the singular doctrine that's worthy of pursuit. Right. If, if you are ever in a position to consider leaving a denomination, right, people will begin calling you schismatic. Right? And yet, there are other ways to look at the situation, particularly if you see a departure by that denomination from the Word of God. There is an obligation then to seek unity by the Word of God. And not in opposition, not in ignorance, not in having to set aside what the Word of God teaches. And so we, we can't heal wounds superficially. We cannot make an idol of false unity. We must pursue real unity in Jesus Christ. Now, do you see what it says in verse 20? I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Through their word. Again, it's stated there. He's speaking of the apostles going out and preaching the word. And they're going to believe through the word. And again, so we see that the ground of this unity is the word of God. The word of God came and gave the word to the apostles. And the apostles have gone out into the world with that word. And others come to believe through that word. And then they take that word out into the world and make others who believe in that word. 
It's all about the word going out and accomplishing the purpose for which God gave to it. And that brings unity. That brings unity. Peace is not just unity. Right? Living and dwelling together is not unity. Submitting ourselves to the word of God in all of its teaching is what makes for unity. And so as, you know, as the word comes, the apostles go out, he makes, they make disciples, the disciples make disciples, and so on and so forth, down to us, right? That path has been, has been followed right down to us. As that happens, as the word goes out and accomplishes its purpose, do you know what comes of it? That's what, it's what, we're, it's what Jesus prayed for. It's unity. True unity. Believers who are regenerated by the Spirit dwell together in unity, and it's a mystical, spiritual unity, right? I and them and you and me, he says. I mean, I can't begin to explain that. I and them and you and me. Unity in Jesus Christ, not despite Jesus Christ. Unity in the Word of God, not despite the Word of God. Unity because of faith, not despite faith, right? Everywhere we go, we are to seek unity through the Word of God. Despite what everyone says, there is no unity away from God's word. Why would we think there is? Right? Why would we think there is? Because we think our methods and our teaching and our love and our kindness and our nuance and our fairness are better than God's. Right? We think we, we know better how to bring people together. Right? We, we know the context better than God Almighty does. We gotta contextualize this message. We gotta we gotta you know, we gotta we gotta change it. Just I mean, not change it, but just change it a little, right? So that we can bring people together, so that we don't divide, and we 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 just prove that we believe that doctrine divides, but our love, our love, our natural love, can unite people. <clears throat> now, let me what. Um, where is this unity seen by the world? Let me say that, of course, anywhere the Word of God unifies people, whether it is across denominations or countries or languages, but, there, but where is it most clearly demonstrated, this unity in the Word of God? The, the place it's best demonstrated is in the local church, right? It's in the local church, dear brothers and sisters. Our commitment to loving God by obeying His commands um, is seen in the local church, right? And that will be our testimony to the world and the church's testimony to the world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who um, I mentioned uh, quite a bit, was forced to think about unity, right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was the, was the man who saw the German church uh, going after the doctrines of the Nazi party, at least turning a blind eye, but, but essentially supporting them. He was forced by a church that had abandoned God's word and was supporting a wicked regime. He was forced to ask the question about what does it mean, um, what is a true church, what does it mean to have unity. He wrote a little book about the beauty of the church, of church unity called Life Together. Right? In that book he says what I'm wanting to say. He says, how very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. This is scripture's praise of life together under the word. But now we can correctly interpret the words in unity and say, when kindred live together through Christ, for Jesus Christ alone is our unity, he is our peace, 
We have access to one another, join one another, community with one another through Christ alone. And so he says that unity comes when we are all under the word. We're all under the word. And what comes of that unity? Well, you have to read the rest of his book to see what he says. But church as family, it basically says church as family where love reigns. Right? As people come together, submitted under the word, uh, family forms because we're formed together in Christ by the Spirit under the word. It's a powerful testimony. Right? Because of Jesus' prayer some 2,000 years ago, we have the opportunity by our unity under the word to show the world the love of God as we live in it together, to show people the love of Jesus as we exercise it together as his people, loving one another, forgiving one another, right? Life together, like all this stuff that's hard, forgiving one another. That's how we show our unity, right? In denominations, it's all abstract and bigger structures, but in in the local body, we like actually have to talk to people and do the forgiving, right? That stupid thing you said in the narthex this morning, you're going to have to go reconcile with your brother and sister or sister and say, you know what, I overspoke. And that's life together, and that's unity in Christ as the conviction of the word of God comes upon us. Right? So we will show the people the love of Jesus as we exercise it together as his people, loving one another, forgiving one another, serving one another, committing, committed to one another, all, all under the ministry of his word. Let me close with, with a summary of this from 1 John chapter 4. In 1 John chapter 4, we read this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. John, John makes things so simple, doesn't he? <laughs> well, that could be argued. There are some complicated things as well, but he, he just says, look, God is love. He's given us his love. We're going to love one another. And, um, and it's, it's by his spirit that he's given to us. It's a spiritual work in the life of the individual and in the life of the church. And that is unity. That's how unity comes. That's how unity comes. And so this prayer of Jesus for unity, we have to sort of detox ourselves of every postmodern idea of tolerance and, and peace and false peace and superficiality and really think about how unity comes. It's wrought by the Spirit through the ministry of the Word of God. right? And as we submit ourselves to the Word of God and are doers of the Word of God, we dwell together in love for one another. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the, the prayer of your Son, Jesus, on behalf of your church. 
Father, we pray that we would continually pursue our sanctification, that we would know your word, that we would study you, and Father, that we would be those who are doers of your word and not merely hearers, and by that we would dwell together in unity. Father, bless our church with unity. Bless us as we pursue obedience to your word. Bless us as we reconcile and forgive one another. Bless us as we live, live as we are called to live in the fear of you and in imitation of your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.